As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents. If you feel at any time you need support, please contact your local crisis centre. For suggested phone numbers for confidential support, please see the show notes for this episode on your app or on our website. In the early evening of August 22, 2012, the village of Stepperside on Dublin's south side had fallen silent and still. Sheila Hawkins peered out her window to a block of apartments across the road. Her eyes settled on one in particular, which belonged to her stepdaughter, 36-year-old Elaine O'Hara. Sheila couldn't see the inside clearly, but she could tell the lights were off and there were no signs of activity. She thought it was strange. Elaine had left the family gathering hours earlier at 4pm, telling others she was going home to rest. Yet, it looked as though she wasn't home at all. Sheila assumed Elaine had gone to bed early to get a good night's sleep ahead of the Tall Ships Festival the next day. She messaged Elaine at 10.34pm, writing, See you at 7.15. Elaine didn't respond. Earlier that day, Sheila had offered Elaine a lift to the Tall Ships Festival. The festival ushers in historic sea vessels to Dublin's port on Ireland's east coast for a three-day event of sailing, live music and festivities. Elaine had signed up to work as a volunteer. Having completed training and preparation, she was thoroughly looking forward to it. Elaine accepted Sheila's offer, grateful for the lift. On the road between their apartments was a bus stop where they planned to meet the morning of the festival. From there, Sheila would drive 20 minutes north into the city, drop Elaine off at the port, and continue onwards to work. As 7.15 approached the following morning of August 23, Sheila looked outside. Slow, semi-frequent traffic rolled past. She scouted the bus stop, but Elaine hadn't arrived yet. Not a big deal, Sheila thought. She was probably still getting ready. When 7.15 came and went, Elaine's absence from the bus stop became a concern. Calling her mobile phone resulted in no answer. Sheila left a message and waited. Yet, Elaine never got back to her. Needing to get to work, Sheila hopped in her car and made the short drive across the road. Elaine's apartment was nestled within a shopping plaza on the northwestern suburban edge of Stepperside, 
The plaza housed a convenience store, pharmacy, dry cleaners, gym and a restaurant. Sheila drove past the shops and headed to the surrounding apartment blocks. Ringing the doorbell to Elaine's apartment was met with no response. Sheila checked the time. She was now at risk of running late for work and couldn't afford to wait around any longer. She decided to head off without Elaine. Over an hour later, Elaine had yet to make contact. Sheila had no idea if her stepdaughter had made it to the Tall Ships Festival. Her niggling concern didn't subside, so Sheila notified her partner, Elaine's father, Frank O'Hara. Frank held little concern. He suspected Elaine must have slept through her morning alarm and woke up in a panic. Not wanting to be late, she jumped straight into her car and rushed off to Dublin. She was probably too busy preparing for the festival to get in touch. As the morning progressed, there was still no news from Elaine, so Frank O'Hara decided to visit his daughter's apartment. Using a spare key, he unlocked the front door and let himself in. Elaine wasn't home, and nothing inside appeared out of place. But a dash of unease crossed his mind when he found her mobile phone. Elaine always had her phone on her, and never left home without it. Maybe on this occasion, in the flurry and excitement for the festival, she accidentally left it behind. Frank left the apartment, assuming Elaine would get in touch when she got back home later. That night, Sheila stood vigil, eyes transfixed on Elaine's apartment. She waited for Elaine's car to pull up, a light to flicker on, her shadow to move past the window. Night fell, and the apartment remained in darkness. No one came or went. Nothing stirred within. At 11.30pm, Frank texted his daughter. Masking his anxiety with a joke, he wrote, Are you alive? Elaine didn't respond. There was an extra reason for Frank O'Hara to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1976. His wife Eileen gave birth to their first child, a girl they named Elaine. Elaine became the eldest of the four O'Hara children, including Anne, Frank Jr. and John. From Elaine's childhood onwards, she developed a close bond with her father that carried on into her adult life. Frank spoke to Elaine every day and saw her three or four times per week. He was to her a pillar of unwavering support. When Elaine failed to contact her father the entirety of August 23, 2012, Frank knew something wasn't right. Seeking answers, he revisited Elaine's apartment the following morning. Everything inside the apartment was as it had been when Frank dropped in the day before. It didn't appear Elaine had come home throughout the night. However, something caught Frank's eye that he missed the first visit. Elaine's handbag. 
He knew it was unlikely Elaine left home forgetting both her mobile phone and her handbag. Checking the apartment's underground parking garage, Frank saw her turquoise-coloured Fiat motor vehicle was missing. Frank made inquiries with the Tall Ships Festival, only to discover Elaine never turned up. There was only one other place Frank thought Elaine may have gone instead of the festival. He contacted Elaine's psychiatrist, Matt Murphy. Recently, Elaine had been discharged from St Edmundsbury Hospital after a six-week stay. Overwhelming financial pressures contributed to Elaine feeling overworked and highly stressed. Having recently purchased her step-aside apartment, she struggled to keep up with payments and needed to have flood damage repaired. Described as having an incredible work ethic, Elaine worked two jobs to keep on top of things. Elaine loved working with children and wanted to have her own one day. According to her father, she could relate to kids better than adults. Therefore, her work as a childcare worker at St John's National School in Ballybrack gave her a sense of joy and accomplishment. In addition to childcare, Elaine worked as a shop assistant in a news agency in Blackrock. News agency owner Ken Robertson found Elaine to be a very honest person who was well liked by customers. He trusted her, permitting her a set of keys to his shop. When Elaine asked to work as many hours that could be made available to her, Ken knew she was having financial problems. On top of working two jobs, Elaine also attended night school. Her goal was to follow in her mother Eileen's footsteps to become a primary school teacher. At the time, she was enrolled in a course to become a qualified Montessori teacher, a unique form of child education that deviates from traditional learning and focuses on developing natural interests. Working two jobs, studying, as well as keeping on top of her pre-existing illnesses, Elaine struggled to cope. In July 2012, she was contemplating suicide. Realising she needed help, Elaine admitted herself to hospital for treatment. Frank O'Hara was surprised when Elaine checked herself in. He thought she'd been doing well lately. It was her 14th stay in St Edmundsbury. Elaine had been in and out of hospital since the age of 16. The catalyst for her first visit in her mid-teens was the death of a close friend in a road accident. Elaine was also bullied causing her to withdraw and isolate herself. Masking the extent of her problems from her family, Elaine shouldered the burden alone, and at age 16, she attempted to take her own life. Her family was shattered, having failed to notice the signs. Elaine was admitted to St Edmundsbury Hospital, where she was treated by esteemed psychiatrist, Dr Anthony Clare. Initially, Dr. Clare was unsure what to diagnose Elaine with. She had an inherent vulnerability, a childlike innocence, and a submissive personality. Her emotions were acute and strong compared to others. She would react more and take longer to return to a calm state. Elaine found it difficult to interact with people and believed she was constantly being judged by others. To some she befriended, Elaine was considered needy high drama, and emotionally volatile, and eventually her behaviour would cause the friendship to end. 
She detailed that from age 12 onwards, she had intrusive thoughts, described as a play in her head, in which she was restrained, imprisoned, and punished. Dr. Clare concluded these thoughts were an obsession for Elaine, and had manifested in what he noted as disturbing and masculine sexual fantasies. During his initial diagnosis, Dr. Clare considered Elaine was experiencing a gradually emerging psychosis, but later ruled it out. Upon further consideration, he diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder and depression. He treated her with medication and tranquilizers. Frank and Eileen O'Hara visited their daughter often and took her out on Saturdays. They recalled Elaine was so heavily medicated she would often fall asleep at the cafe they were dining in. She lost much of her late teens and young adult life from being medicated and constantly in and out of hospital. As such, it had an impact on her socially. She didn't experience these formative years like others. It was noted that Elaine's emotional maturity was that of a 15-year-old, and she was very trusting of anyone who showed her kindness. Although Dr. Clare noted Elaine lived a lonely life, she maintained a closeness with both her parents. Both Frank and Eileen supported her throughout her hospitalisation and treatment, looking optimistically towards her future. However, things took a turn for the worse in March 2002. Eileen O'Hara passed away at 52 years of age. Unable to cope with the sudden loss of her mother, Elaine retreated further into isolation, smoking upwards of 40 cigarettes per day. Frank O'Hara was devastated, but found understanding with his new relationship with Sheila Hawkins. Yet, Elaine continued to struggle. Her mother's death reignited dormant suicidal thoughts and self-harming behaviours. As a result, Elaine was hospitalised. Upon her release in 2003, Elaine appeared back on track. She started night school and was working. She moved out of the family home to an apartment of her own. In 2005, her family threw her a party for her 29th birthday. However, Elaine became upset during the festivities and left abruptly. Later, her sister Anne went to check on her and found Elaine had overdosed. She returned to hospital and after a two-month stay, she was released. Another attempt occurred the following year in 2006. Another massive setback occurred in 2007. Dr. Anthony Clare, whom had been treating Elaine for 16 years, died. Matt Murphy took over as Elaine's psychiatrist. Dr. Murphy wanted to treat Elaine with less medication, instead using cognitive behavioural therapy. It aimed to change unhealthy habits of thinking, feeling and behaving through practical self-help strategies. Over time, Elaine's medication was reduced and she took well to therapy. Dr. Murphy was impressed with her progress. In 2011, Elaine texted her sister claiming she had been five weeks pregnant but miscarried. The man involved was a one-night stand she refused to name. She wouldn't answer any more questions about it at all. Although Elaine was known to embellish the truth, Sheila believed her stepdaughter wasn't creative enough to come up with straight-out lies. During her last stay in St. Edmundsbury Hospital, 
Her cognitive behavioural therapist noted Elaine was cheerful, spontaneous, smiling, alert, and seemed happy. Hospital staff recalled she excitedly talked with them and other patients incessantly about the Tall Ships Festival. She was giving up a full weekend's work at the news agency to attend the festival, displaying a positive change in attitude, prioritising what made her happy. Despite her struggles, her therapist remarked 2012 had been an overall good year for Elaine. Her mood was best on the day she was discharged, August 22. There was no indication Elaine was feeling suicidal. Frank O'Hara agreed with Elaine's therapists. She had been doing better lately. Yet, he couldn't shake the fear Elaine may have harmed herself. It was a consideration he was hesitant to have, but he understood the possibility. Elaine lived a lonely life. On her hospital admission sheet, under the heading Social Support Network, someone noted, Supportive Dad, No Friends. It was only half true. To Elaine, Frank was not just her father, but her best friend. It was shortly after noon on August 22 when Elaine walked out of hospital. She visited a pharmacy and also made a phone call to the news agency to discuss upcoming shifts. After dropping her bags at home, Elaine went with her father to Shangana Cemetery, almost 10 kilometres southeast of Steppeside. On the drive there, Frank recalled Elaine was distracted on her mobile phone texting someone. They visited Eileen O'Hara's grave, and Elaine became visibly upset, which wasn't unusual. Before departing, she kissed her mother's tombstone. Afterwards, they had lunch and then went to Frank's house. Standing at the doorway to his home, Frank watched Elaine play with her niece, who was also her goddaughter, on the green across the road. Elaine gave her niece a bracelet she had made. At 4pm, Elaine announced she was going home to get some rest. Having no explanation as to why she didn't make it to the festival the following day, Frank assumed the worst. He contacted his other children to let them know Elaine was missing. They began to piece together Elaine's last known whereabouts. Elaine's sister Anne said she had attempted to call Elaine on the night of August 22, but she never answered. Elaine's brother-in-law, Mark Charles, drove to Shangana Cemetery. The cemetery is upon 70 acres of flat, empty land. Rows and rows of tombstones are interrupted by only a few trees. The wind carries the sounds of rolling waves from Shankill Beach, less than a kilometre away. A large expanse of parkland frames the cemetery, with a long stretch of railroad on its eastern edge. When Mark arrived at the cemetery, he spotted a familiar turquoise-coloured Fiat vehicle. The rest of the O'Hara family were informed, and a short time later, Elaine's brother John arrived to investigate. The vehicle was locked, requiring them to contact roadside assistance to gain access. Inside, they found two packets of cigarettes, a lighter, Elaine's driver's license, a portable satellite navigation system, and most strangely, a mobile phone charger that didn't match Elaine's phone. Upon the discovery of Elaine's vehicle, her family in Stepaside conducted a more thorough search of her apartment, 
Attempts to access Elaine's mobile phone were fruitless, as no one knew the PIN code. Her medication for diabetes, asthma, depression, vertigo, cholesterol and anxiety were all inside her apartment, untouched. Several printouts were found. Two were from a hunting website. They featured information on two types of knives. Other printouts were of maps of nearby Killikee Forest and Vartry Reservoir. No one understood why these were locations of interest for Elaine. Written in a notebook were references to a website. It was a fetish social network and dating site. During an earlier search, Sheila had found a black latex outfit in a laundry basket. The significance of the fetish websites and paraphernalia were lost on Elaine's siblings, but both Frank and Sheila understood. They were aware Elaine had a preoccupation with restraint and punishment since her adolescence and it had manifested into a fantasy. On several occasions she had spoken about it to others, but the extent of her involvement in the lifestyle was not known. The details started to unravel within her apartment. By August 24, there was still no word from Elaine. Having found nothing to indicate where she may have gone, Frank O'Hara attended the Stepaside Garda station. Garda, meaning Guardians of the Peace, more commonly referred to as Guardi or the Guards, is the police force of the Republic of Ireland. By 3pm, police headed to the Shangana Cemetery to investigate Elaine's car and to conduct a search of the surrounding area. However, in addition to the large scale of the cemetery itself, the landscape surrounds were not conducive to a simple search. There was a lot of ground to cover. The expansive leafy parkland, sporting fields, the Woodbrook Golf Club, Shankill Beach and the railroad. They arranged for a helicopter to assist in the search, but it was grounded due to problematic weather. As night fell, police arrived to Elaine's apartment, but they didn't find anything to indicate where she might be. Elaine's apartment complex had 10 security cameras throughout. Footage from August 22 showed Elaine leaving her apartment shortly before 5pm. She looked to be wearing jeans with running shoes, a blue jacket or jumper, and she was carrying a mobile phone. Since Elaine's mobile phone was found in her apartment, it was unknown where she obtained this other phone or why she was using it. A canvas of the apartment block revealed a neighbour of Elaine's was parking his car in the underground garage around 5.05pm August 22. He spotted Elaine getting into her car alone, and he playfully honked the horn to acknowledge her. She waved back. Days later, as the search around the Shangana parklands continued, police asked park visitors if they recalled seeing Elaine in recent days. As Connor Guilfoyle jogged around Shangana Park, police stopped him to inquire about Elaine O'Hara. The name was unfamiliar to Connor, but when he was shown a photograph, he recognised her. Connor said he had seen her in the parklands before, but he couldn't recall exactly when. He remembered he recently used a mobile phone application called Map My Run whilst out jogging. The app used a GPS system to track the user's running route as well as the date and time they took it. At the time, Connor had only used the app twice, 
one instance being the evening he saw Elaine, so he was easily able to determine via the app the time and date he saw her. Around 5.45pm on August 22, 2012. Connor told the police Elaine had stopped him and asked for directions to a nearby footbridge. The bridge was in a secluded area of the parkland, framed on either end by dense trees and shrubbery. It crossed over the railroad to the east. Due to an incline, it wasn't immediately visible. Connor remembered the conversation as Elaine's behaviour was strange. After he told her where the bridge was, their conversation ended. She did not say thank you or make any sort of engagement with him, appearing distant and uninterested. At approximately 6.15pm, Connor passed Elaine again. She was crossing the bridge over the railroad, heading in the direction of the cliffs overlooking the Shankill Beach seafront. As Connor approached, he considered saying humorously, well, you found the bridge okay, but due to her previous disinterest in conversation, he just ran on without saying a word. He didn't see her again. Police believed Elaine had gone to the cemetery to visit the grave of her mother. From there they shaped the scenario, with Elaine's history of mental illness, specifically depression, playing a major part. The end result being Elaine took her own life somewhere around Shangana. There was no evidence to point to any other cause for her disappearance. The O'Hara family had little option but to accept this scenario. They spent many hours walking the ocean shoreline from Black Rock to Bray, searching for any sign of Elaine. One year after her disappearance, they laid flowers in the sea at Shangana in her memory, and in an effort to find some closure. The summer of 2013 brought with it a heatwave that was the hottest Dublin had been in a decade. As the Irish economy reaped the rewards of the unusually hot weather with a 30 million euro increase, reservoirs bore the brunt of the sweltering population. Water levels dropped significantly. With no rainfall on the horizon, Ireland was officially in drought mode. The Vartry Reservoir in Roundwood saw its usual depth of between 4 to 6 metres drop to just 15 to 30 centimetres. As water levels lowered, hidden items beneath the surface were exposed. The heatwave subsided by September 5, but the Vartry Reservoir had yet to refill. Two fishermen had their lines hanging over Sally's Bridge, a narrow, light-lying bridge that crossed the reservoir. As they waited, the men caught sight of a bag in the shallow, unmoving water below. They didn't have the right equipment to retrieve it, so they left it. Five days later, on September 10, William Fegan crossed Sally's Bridge on his way to work. He ran into his brother James and a friend, Mark Quinn. As the men chatted, something shiny in the water below caught their attention. Mark supplied a hook and a tension strap, and the men set to work trying to retrieve the metallic object. Hanging the strap over the bridge, they dipped the hook into the water. They snagged and lifted out numerous items, including a singlet, a hoodie, handcuffs, leg shackles, and a ball gag. Aside from the clothing, the other items were known to be used by those within the BDSM community, an erotic practice involving consensual bondage, discipline, dominance, and submission. 
Without any clue what to do with their find, the men placed the objects on top of the small wall of the bridge and went their separate ways. But William Fegan couldn't stop thinking about the strange items fished from the reservoir. He returned to the bridge the following day. The items were still on the wall where the group had left them. William took the collection to the Roundwood Garda station, handing them over to Officer James O'Donoghue. Not being able to immediately draw any significance from the items, O'Donoghue hung the clothing up to dry and bagged the rest of the items. However, his mind was plagued with unanswered questions. The following day, O'Donoghue contacted William Fegan, wanting to be taken to where the items were found. The pair arrived at Sully's Bridge, but the reservoir water was too murky to see beneath the surface. He conducted a cursory search of the area, Finding nothing of note, he left the scene. But O'Donoghue couldn't just let it go. Looking back, he said, quote, Why would someone dispose of these in the reservoir? If it's a couple just disposing of their adult toys, why not just throw them in the bin? Someone was trying to hide something. O'Donoghue visited the bridge once more, but the water still hadn't cleared. For an hour, he came to the shoreline, but again, found nothing. O'Donoghue's gut feeling compelled him to make a third trip to the reservoir on September 16. This time, he came prepared with rubber boots. It was 5pm. The sun was shining and the water was calm. It had cleared slightly since his previous visits, and O'Donoghue could make out the stock end of a pair of handcuffs. O'Donoghue stepped into the water. In doing so, he disrupted the mud floor and a black cloud rose up, obscuring his view. So he began to feel around with his hands. He pulled out a set of keys, with a car key, a house key, and three faded loyalty cards attached. Finding his suspicions were well-founded, he searched further, recovering an asthma inhaler, clothing, a leather mask, sex toys, and a knife. He placed each item into an evidence bag and returned to the station. One of the loyalty cards on the keys was for Dunn's Stores, a large retail chain. An employee for Dunn's Stores revealed the owner of the card was a woman named Elaine O'Hara from Stepaside. The card had been inactive for a year. The name didn't ring any bells, so O'Donoghue called the Garda Information Services hotline. The name Elaine O'Hara was run through a database called Pulse, which holds information on perpetrators and victims of crime. That's when O'Donoghue discovered Elaine was a missing person, reported just over one year ago. James O'Donoghue, quote, At that moment I had a sinking feeling that she was murdered and I found the murder weapon. I rang my sergeant and told him, we've got a murder on our hands. I've got no body yet, but I'm sure of it. I told him the name, and he just pauses. To O'Donoghue's surprise, the sergeant informed him that Elaine O'Hara had just been found. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Magalie Vernier was a professional dog walker. She preferred to take her client's dogs to the Killakee Mountains, where they were free to roam and run through the woodland. The Killakee Mountains are a part of the Grand Wicklow Mountains National Park, south of Dublin. The park attracts tourists and locals alike, who venture for long hikes through the majestic and dense forests to view the deep mountain lakes and rocky streams. The particular area Magalie walked was owned by Frank Doyle, He'd given Magalie permission to use his land in July 2013. The only way to access the area via vehicle was through a gated entrance that required a key. Magalie trekked the area for around an hour, five days per week, with between four and eight dogs. Around noon on August 21, 2013, Magalie was walking within the woods, dog companions in tow. Afterwards, her own pup, a Cocker Spaniel King Charles Cavalier mix named Millie was nowhere to be seen. Magalie called out, and her cavy emerged from the forest carrying something in her mouth. It was a long bone. Magalie placed it on a nearby concrete block out of the dog's reach and returned home. Over the following weeks, whenever Magalie returned to the area to walk the dogs, Millie would disappear into the forest. Each time, she'd return with a new bone. Magalie collected the bones on the concrete block. At the end of a walk on September 13, 2013, Millie again ran into the forest. Magalie called out, but this time her pup didn't return. Magalie could hear Millie rummaging around nearby and went to see what her dog was up to. A short animal-made track led to a hidden clearing surrounded by a wall of forest. Within the muddy clearing, Magalie noticed bones scattered about, including a rib cage. Magalie thought they were from an animal and continued on, until she came across a pair of tracksuit pants. A running shoe was stuck in one of the legs. Fifteen to twenty metres further, Magalie found her dog chewing on more bones. A sense of dread washed over Magalie. She grabbed Millie and rushed back to her car. The mountain didn't have mobile phone coverage, so Magalie quickly dropped off the other dogs to their owners and hurried home. She contacted the land's owner, Frank Doyle, telling him what she had found in the forest. 
Later that afternoon, Magalie returned to the mountain with Frank and one of his friends. She escorted them to the area where she found the bones and clothing. The remains sunk into the ground and were slightly covered by undergrowth and grass. Initially, the men believed they were looking at animal bones, but upon closer inspection, they found a jawbone with teeth that were undeniably human. By 8pm, police arrived to the Killakee Mountains. They agreed the bones appeared to be human and the area was sealed off. Only three people had a key to the gate to Frank's land. When asked if it was ever left open, Frank stated, Not to my knowledge, I never leave it open myself. Frank visited the area at least every two weeks, more often in hunting season. He was aware people accessed the area without his knowledge or consent. He knew courting couples were known to occupy the area, and he'd found condoms and McDonald's wrappers in the past. It wasn't the first time human remains had been discovered around the Wicklow Mountains National Park, though the question remained, whose remains had Magalie Vernier stumbled across in the Killakee Mountains? Daybreak the following morning kicked off a search of the area. Of the collection of bones Magalie had placed on the concrete block, three were found to be human, a humerus, tibia and fibula. After scanning the immediate vicinity, 60-65% to of the victim's skeletal remains were retrieved. Forensic examination confirmed the remains belonged to a female aged in her 30s at the time of her death. A cause of death was unable to be determined. Foul play was sensed when a shovel was found, yet the remains had not been buried. An attempt may have been made by the perpetrator, but the land was difficult to penetrate due to dense tree roots underneath. Initial speculation was the body could have been one of several missing women dating back to the 90s, but officers at the scene believed the death occurred more recently. Further forensic tests confirmed their suspicions. The time of death was limited to between one and two years prior to discovery. Forensic evidence, coupled with the type of clothing found at the scene, gave police an inkling as to the identity of the remains. A DNA profile was obtained and cross-checked with DNA obtained from the O'Hara family. Four days later, on September 17, 2013, the remains were positively identified as those of Elaine O'Hara. The identification of Elaine's remains coincided with the discovery of her car keys in the Vartry Reservoir. From what was known so far, Elaine left her apartment in Stepaside at around 5pm August 22, 2012, for reasons unknown. She left her mobile phone and handbag at home, but was seen on CCTV footage carrying a different mobile phone. She got into her car and drove to Shangana Cemetery. She briefly interacted with a passing jogger in the parklands north of the cemetery before she was sighted crossing a footbridge heading towards Shankill Beach at around 6pm. This was the last known sighting of Elaine. Just over one year later, her skeletal remains were discovered in the secluded forest of the Killakee Mountains, about a 20 kilometre drive east from Shangana Cemetery. 
a more comprehensive search of the Vartri Reservoir was conducted, and more items of interest were recovered, including a Nokia-brand mobile phone, a red and black bag, more BDSM-related items, and multiple knives. The mobile phone was severely water-damaged, but Nokia's informal reputation that they can't die was proven when investigators found that despite sitting in the reservoir for an extended time, the device actually powered on. The phone only had one contact, saved under the name Master. Master's phone number was cross-checked with numbers saved in Elaine's mobile phone she had left in her apartment. There was a match. Except in Elaine's phone, the number was listed under the name David. When called, there was no answer. Investigators discovered the Nokia phone found in the reservoir was purchased in November 2011 at a store on Grafton Street, a main shopping strip in the heart of Dublin. It was one of two prepaid mobile phones purchased under the same transaction. The phones were sold to a male who gave the name Garoon Casehome and listed his address as a street in Tipperary, a landlocked county in Ireland south. Unbeknownst to the rest of the investigation team, their superintendent, Demid O'Sullivan, was making some covert inquiries of his own. He had received an anonymous tip regarding an architect named Dwyer. The tips that claimed Dwyer had killed Elaine O'Hara. Due to the sensitive nature, O'Sullivan kept the tipster's information confidential on a strict need-to-know basis. The architect connection to Elaine wasn't new information. Frank O'Hara had previously mentioned to police an argument he had with Elaine in 2008. The pair were arguing about finances. In the heat of the moment, she revealed she was seeing a professional. She didn't name him, only referring to him as an architect from Fox Rock. Attempting to get more information from his daughter, Frank asked if the man was married. She answered yes, and further revealed the pair were in a BDSM relationship. After this instance, neither Elaine nor Frank spoke of the architect again. It was difficult for Frank to determine the legitimacy of Elaine's emotional claims. She would often say outrageous things, purely to shock. However, investigators found more references to the architect on Elaine's personal computer. Messages were sent to Elaine by a user on a fetish dating site under the name Architect72. The messages referenced fetish boy, cutting myself, and punishment involving a master's scalpel. Elaine's profile had also viewed another profile under the username Architect77. Superintendent O'Sullivan was determined to positively identify the architect in Elaine's life. The anonymous tipster had pinpointed Baggett Street as a place where Dwyer could be found. The street is located in Dublin City, and sure enough, an architect named Graham Dwyer worked for a major firm in the area. 42-year-old Dwyer was a married father of three. He lived with his family in the affluent suburb of Fox Rock, southeast of Dublin. In the early hours of September 27, O'Sullivan and a colleague had eyes fixed on a sleek two-storey house at the end of the tree-lined cul-de-sac of Kerrymount Close in Fox Rock. The house belonged to their person of interest, Graham Dwyer. 
It was bin night, and bins belonging to Dwyer were standing alongside the curb out the front of his property. As they were officially on public land, it was legal for O'Sullivan to search them and take items without a warrant. From the discarded trash, they made a DNA profile of Graham Dwyer. In a search of Elaine's apartment, investigators found her mattress had bloodstains, puncture marks and semen staining. Forensics were able to obtain a DNA sample from the semen staining. It didn't match any pre-existing profiles in the database, but when it was compared to the sample obtained by O'Sullivan from Graham Dwyer's rubbish, there was a match. Dwyer's profile picture on his online LinkedIn page matched a baby-faced, pot-bellied man seen on CCTV footage at Elaine's apartment complex. The man in the footage visited Elaine's apartment complex nine times between January and August 2012. Footage retrieved from July 9, 2012 showed Elaine with the man. They entered the lobby's lift shortly after 5pm. 40 minutes later, he left the building. On footage from August 13 and 15, 2012, the man was caught carrying a bag, the same type recovered from the Vartry Reservoir in October 2013. Furthermore, the internet history on Elaine's computer revealed a Google search had been made for Graham Dwyer, architect. Further information had also been extracted from the Nokia mobile phone found in the Vartry Reservoir. A text received from Master in June 2011 mentioned he came fifth in flying. Investigators discovered a model aircraft competition in Roundwood had occurred the day the text was sent. The competitor who came in fifth place in that competition was Graham Dwyer. Furthermore, the second mobile phone purchased by a person claiming to be Garoon Casehome was pinged by cell towers in both Dublin and Galway on the same day. Dublin is on the east coast, Galway on the west. The two locations are a straight 210km, 2.5 hour drive from one another. Information gathered from toll roads revealed Graham Dwyer's Audi sports car had made a trip to Dublin and Galway the same day the mobile phone was pinged in each location. The search of the Vartry Reservoir was still ongoing at this point. Found within was a pair of reading glasses. The serial number on the frame confirmed they were Elaine O'Hara's. But the biggest discovery was made on October 7. The second Nokia-brand mobile phone purchased by Garoon Case Home was found, along with a SIM card. Like the first mobile phone, this one also powered on despite being underwater for an extended period. Data revealed the phone had only one contact, saved under the name Slave. The two phones purchased by Garoon Case Home were only ever used to contact one another. A total of 300 text messages were extracted from both phones, revealing the story leading up to Elaine O'Hara's death. On August 20, 2012, Elaine O'Hara was in her final days of her hospital stay. She received a text message to her secret Nokia mobile from the only contact it ever held, Master. It read, You must be punished for trying to kill yourself without me. The following day, she received more messages. At one stage, Elaine found the confidence to label her master as selfish, but quickly apologised. 
she anticipated he'd punish her for it. Master responded, It's up to me, and you have a big punishment coming up. Knife in the guts. It wasn't the first violent message she had received from Master. He messaged her many times regarding his desire to hurt her. In one text, he stated, My urge to rape, stab, kill is huge. You have to help me control or satisfy it. The graphic text messages continued as Elaine prepared to leave hospital. Master demanded outdoor play. He stated, I found a really, really remote place. No one will find us. Elaine admitted in multiple responses she was frightened. She didn't want to talk about killing or blood anymore. Master replied, Every time I stab and strangle you, I want you to think this is it. And every time I let you live, you owe me your life and are grateful and worship me. Elaine was discharged from hospital August 22, 2012. Master continued to text her, planning his outdoor play fantasy. Elaine was overtly reluctant. She didn't want him to do anything that would cause her pain. Master responded, You will have stab wounds. You know the drill. Last few didn't bleed, but these will. He went on to detail his plan. I want you to park at Shangana Cemetery at 5.30pm. Leave phone at home. Just bring slave phone and keys. You will get further instructions there. Shortly before 4pm that day, another text was received. Master told her it's never as bad as she thinks it's going to be, adding a smiley emoticon at the end of the message. Elaine responded, Yes it is, sir. Master told her, Your only job is to serve. By 4.50pm, Elaine's consent in his plans had waned. Elaine wrote she feared him. Master then manipulated her to submit to his demands. Shortly after 5pm, Elaine arrived to Shangana Cemetery where she received the following message. Cross the railway bridge into the next park near the cliffs. Unable to locate the bridge, Elaine stopped a jogger in the parkland to ask for directions. A message lit up her phone. Cross bridge and head to opposite end of park near steps to sea. Then another message shortly after. Go down to shore and wait. That was the final text sent and received between either phone. On October 17, 2013, police knocked on the front door of the home belonging to Graham Dwyer. There was no answer, so they went to a side door. Dwyer eventually appeared, shirtless and in pyjama pants. He was arrested on the suspicion of murdering Elaine O'Hara on August 22, 2012. Ten detectives conducted a search of Dwyer's home as he was led away. Dwyer participated in an interview. He was asked many questions relating to information Elaine had received from Master via texts. Dwyer's sister lived in the county of Tipperary matching an address given by Garoon Case Home when the two prepaid Nokia mobile phones were purchased. It was becoming clear that Garoon Case Home was a fake name used by Graham Dwyer when purchasing the phones. Dwyer had recently purchased a bike, 
and in one text Elaine received from Master. Master explained he had just purchased the bike to get fit for murder. Dwyer had also recently had a pay cut. This too was referenced in a message from Master. Interviewing officers revealed the evidence they had gathered so far linking Dwyer to Elaine's murder. Dwyer stated he had been to the plaza where she lived only once. He was immediately caught out lying when shown all the footage of him coming and going from her apartment complex throughout 2012. Additionally, the Nokia mobile phone used by Master was pinged off towers near Elaine's apartment at the time Dwyer was seen in footage visiting her. Dwyer backpedalled and admitted knowing Elaine, but according to him, they didn't have a sexual relationship. This was contradicted by his semen staining found on her mattress. Dwyer then confessed he was in a sexual relationship with Elaine, but had lied to keep the affair from his wife. An invoice made out to Dwyer revealed an order was made online on August 17, 2012, to an outdoor sports shop. The invoice was for a buck special 119 hunting knife. A note asked the package be marked private and confidential. The knife was delivered to Dwyer's workplace on the morning of August 21, 2012 the day before Elaine went missing. Additionally, extensive amounts of erotic horror content were found on Dwyer's personal computer. He shared files with Elaine's computer about stabbing and killing. Also found were homemade videos featuring Elaine filmed by Dwyer. The mobile phone Dwyer used for his day-to-day life was switched off between 5pm and 9pm the night Elaine went missing. Dwyer was charged and pled not guilty to the murder of Elaine O'Hara. Courtroom number 13 in Dublin's criminal court was filled to capacity on January 22, 2015, the day his trial started. The mood in the court was sombre as the first witness took the stand, Elaine's father, Frank. He gave an emotional account of his daughter's life, her battle with mental illness, and how she hoped to one day become a primary school teacher. The defence counsel aimed to pull apart each piece of evidence to prove it was all circumstantial. But in total, they only called three witnesses to the stand and questioned them all within 30 minutes. The prosecution summoned 194 witnesses. They included Dwyer's current wife. When shown a photograph of the shovel found in the forest of the Killakee Mountains where Elaine's remains were discovered, she identified it as belonging to her household. She noticed some time ago that it was missing. Dwyer's ex-partner described him as controlling and abusive. During their relationship, he expressed the desire to stab her during sex. He asked to bring a knife into the bedroom, promising he wouldn't hold it. Despite her being uncomfortable, he went back on his word and held the knife during intimate acts. Another witness spoke at trial via video link. Casey, not her real name testified she had met Dwyer online. She shared with him her psychiatric issues, including feeling suicidal. A document was found on Dwyer's computer titled Killing Casey. It was a story detailing the fictional murder of Casey. Casey revealed Dwyer discussed a fantasy of wanting to stab a woman during sex. She believed there were similarities between herself and Elaine O'Hara, and it was clear to her Dwyer targeted vulnerable, submissive, lonely women who were easy to control. 
The trial lasted eight weeks, and on March 27, 2015, the jury reached a verdict. They found Graham Dwyer guilty. Dwyer was given a mandatory life sentence. Justice Tony Hunt, quote, It's difficult to look beyond the chilling and premeditated murder, execution almost, carried out after a protracted campaign of the most vile manipulation and abuse of a woman who was too weak to resist and who made the fatal mistake of trusting Mr. Dwyer that he wasn't going to go any further than he indicated on August 22. When you read the booklet of texts, you want to cry out to her to stop and turn back. Of course, it was too late for that. So that is it. Life it is. The identity of the anonymous tipster who phoned police to name Dwyer as the suspect, and the reason why they thought Dwyer was the suspect, has never been revealed. What exactly happened when Elaine was murdered, and the exact cause of her death, has never been determined. A victim impact statement was read out in court, prepared by Frank O'Hara. We know we are not the only victims of this crime. We recognise that other families are suffering too, and we feel for every other person affected. Words cannot adequately describe how we are feeling, and we would never want any other family to go through what we have endured over the past two and a half years. We have lost a daughter, a sister, and a friend in the most brutal, traumatic, and horrifying manner. We also have many unanswered questions which we will have to carry with us for the rest of our lives. Elaine was a very intelligent girl who never fully realised her potential due to her psychological difficulties. She was always there to help and assist others, giving lifts, covering shifts at work, or collecting many of the items for the Christmas fair at school. Elaine adored her niece, who was also her goddaughter, and loved reading, painting, and playing with her. For months after she went missing, her goddaughter would point out cars that were like Elaine's, saying, there's Elaine's car. We smiled and nodded. How can you explain something to a young child that we couldn't understand ourselves? Since she left us, Elaine has two more nieces, but they will never know their aunt. Elaine's ambition was to be a teacher, and she was studying Montessori. In 2014, we collected a BA in Montessori education, which was awarded to her in St. Nicholas Montessori School. She would have been so happy and proud to stand up in her gown and hat to accept that degree herself, and overcoming many obstacles to finally get the qualification she longed for. But unfortunately, this was not meant to be. When Elaine went missing in August 2012, we were devastated. At that time, she appeared to us to be progressing well in life. She had a new apartment, was studying, and working in two jobs. She had a setback in July 2012 and was voluntarily admitted to hospital. However, on weekend release, she was in very good form and was looking forward to the future. Our attempt at closure was premature, as when in September 2013, Elaine's remains were discovered, the Garda investigation changed from that of a missing person to murder. This led to further anguish for the family, as we now faced the unimaginable horror to Elaine having been murdered. The trial has been an incredibly difficult experience. 
It was heartbreaking for us to listen to the text messages Elaine received from a depraved and diseased mind. The manipulation of her vulnerability was apparent, and when she tried to resist, she was reined back in. We can hear her voice in those texts, just wanting to be loved. We will probably never know what happened in Killikey on Wednesday the 22nd of August 2012, but there are questions that trouble us. When did Elaine realise it was not a game anymore? When did she realise that the intention was to kill her for real? Did she try to run? Was she restrained? Did she suffer much? Could she and did she cry out? Was she left on the mountain to die alone? This is our life sentence. For us, there is no parole. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.